Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The New Statesman. I'm Ida Vok, Europe correspondent in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor, U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Katie Stallard, senior editor, China and global affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It is Thursday, the 8th of December. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Latvia canceled the license of independent Russian-language media channel TV Rain. What caused the decision, and what will be the consequences of it? Meanwhile, voters in Georgia, the state, went to the polls again and re-elected Raphael Warnock, defeating Herschel Walker. It, it is my honor to utter the four most powerful words ever spoken in a democracy. The people have spoken. What does this mean for Republicans, Democrats, and the U.S. Senate? We also take a listener question on the apparent end of China's zero-COVID policy. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Well... We're covering a lot of ground today, rhetorically, globally, and dare I say emotionally. All right, let's get into it. Latvia canceled the license of Russia's last independent media channel, TV Rain, after only five months on air there. Latvia accused the channel of showing support for Russia's war in Ukraine. TV Rain, or Dojt as it is known in Russian, has called the decision unfair and absurd. All right, Ido, TV Rain is, was in exile in Latvia on air. Several months go by. Its license is revoked. What exactly happened? As you said, Dorscht had been broadcasting in Latvia since about June, um, because obviously they left Russia in the days after Russia invaded Ukraine in February. Their last broadcast was in early March, and then they they shut down. They're a TV channel associated with the opposition. Um, they've been around since 2008. But obviously, the, the environment for opposition media in Russia became steadily less welcoming up until the point at which they left. So they left and then 
they eventually started broadcasting again in Latvia, as you said. But they they clashed with the authorities several times, and it seems like this was the last straw. So they've been fined for doing things like referring to the Russian armed forces as, quote, our army, broadcasting a map showing occupied Crimea, which is recognized by the international community and by Ukraine as part of Ukraine, and Dorscht showed it as part of Russia. They also interviewed the mayor of Riga about the potential removal of Soviet-era memorials and had really quite a tough interview with him, which caused outrage in the country. And that was in August. And um, the latest example, the last straw, was when a, a host asked for stories of conditions at the front for conscripted Russian soldiers, but then added, quote, we hope we also helped many military personnel, namely by assisting with equipment and bare essentials on the front line, which was taken by the Latvian government as showing support for for the Russian army and suggesting that Dojt was arming and equipping the Russian army. The TV channel denied this and fired the journalist responsible, but that wasn't enough. And now they've uh, had the license revoked. I mean, I think I do think it's important to stress that this was a station in exile that was in exile entirely because of its opposition to the Russian regime and to Putin and, and to this in part to this war. Katie, when you heard the decision, what what did you think? To some extent, this actually reminds me of what happened back in 2014 in Russia itself, when at the time Dojd was broadcast on cable packages within Russia, the government was actively looking for reasons to, to shut it down. And, and in 2014, they ran this extremely bad taste poll where they asked viewers to vote on whether Leningrad, the, the city now known as St. Petersburg, which suffered terribly during during the Second World War with the, the, the famous siege, they asked, should the city have been surrendered to save lives? Um, that was taken by the authorities as an insult to the memory of everyone who had died during the siege of Leningrad. And it became a, a cudgel to, to beat Dojd with and to show that this is an unpatriotic channel, and it was dropped from its cable providers and, and, and began operating primarily online. I, I bring that up because it that felt like the proximate cause for something that the authorities wanted to do anyway, which was to shut down or at least to marginalize and um, significantly dodged. So I don't want to minimize the very offensive things that this anchor seems to have said, but I think we should be clear about the broader picture here and whose interests this serves the most, which is which is the Kremlin's and which is Putin's. You know, if you look at the response of people like Kirill Yarmish, the, the press secretary for um, Alexei Navalny, currently in a maximum security Russian prison, says that this this is helping Putin. Um, this is helping the Kremlin. When you have figures like that who are saying this is harmful to the Russian opposition, I think we should take those those voices seriously. And it, and it, it also does need to be seen in the broader context of you know, the calls that we have seen in, in past months, which Ido has done a lot of great reporting on to pass, for instance, visa bans against Russian citizens and, and to kind of see Russian journalists who are now, many of them, operating in exile with, with some degree of suspicion. You know, I just can't emphasize enough how important it is that there is independent Russian media still operating and able to offer an alternative narrative to the propaganda um, that, that the Kremlin is, is pumping out. So look, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated 
situation. But but overall, you know, I I, I can only imagine the glee in the halls of, of the Kremlin watching this decision be taken in Europe. So I agree with Katie. I think this is um, ca- ultimately counterproductive. Um, ultimately, you want to, as you said, push back against the Kremlin's narrative, the propaganda narratives coming out of Russian state TV. And really one of the few ways that we have available to do this is the opposition media of which Dojd is one of the most prominent examples. At the same time, I also think that this was honestly pretty predictable. I spoke to Sanita Jamburgo, who's the executive director of the Baltic Center for Investigative Journalism, who told me basically, in her view, this was always going to happen because really from the beginning, Dorscht took a really combative line um, against Latvian politics and interfered in Latvian domestic political issues. So for example, a memorial issue, which... Um, a lot of Latvians feel very strongly about because of the history of the Soviet occupation in their country. On the visa ban issue, they intervened in it. And a lot of Latvians saw this quite negatively. It's not like these are ethnic Russians who are citizens of Latvia, Russian speakers, um, or permanent, permanent residents who grew up in Latvia but don't have a passport. They are Russians they say they love Russia, they've been kicked out of Russia, and they say they want to return to Russia. And they came to Latvia and interfered in Latvian politics in a way that was quite provocative and frankly offensive to a lot of Latvians. And it's not really a surprise that eventually that they took it a bit too far and um, there was a backlash against them. And it's not surprising because they're ultimately a channel staffed and primarily aimed at Russians. And we've always had this kind of idea since the beginning of the war that like the West broadly construed Ukraine and anti-Putin Russians were like broadly on the same side. And like, that's true, but we're not wholly aligned on every single issue. And Latvia is, you know, part of the Baltic states who are the most hawkish on Russia. And it's quite natural that even opposition-minded Russians have slightly different ways of framing framing their views to the war, framing their views on Russian politics than, for example, Latvians do. And it seems to me that Dorst were really pushing their luck with with what they were trying to do. But at the same time, it, it, was, it was never completely realistic to expect that the political positions of even anti-Putin Russians would completely align with political opinion in the most hawkish Western states like Latvia. I think there's a broader issue that you're touching on, which is who is the protagonist here? Right. Of course, everyone says it's the Ukrainians, but there, there's another version of the story in which the protagonist is or is understood to be liberal Russians, where it's, you know, what does this mean for us now? And I'm not trying to say that, that the people working at Doge don't understand that the war first and foremost affects Ukrainians, but I think they have a different understanding of how it also affects them. Because as you say, they're Russians who are from a, diff- a, a different country than the people who made this decision in Latvia. And I think there's still, if you look at some of the rhetoric coming out of the Baltic states, it's all Russians are bad. Like all Russians are doing this to us. If you are a Russian liberal person working in media, of course, you're not going to understand yourself that way. You're not going to understand your history that way. And what do we do when these two narratives run into each other? 
but it but it's not even it's not even like they were like they were welcome in Latvia. They were given a broadcasting license. Volkov, Alexei Navalny's chief of staff, is based in Lithuania. Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, the Belarusian, obviously not Russian, but you know Belarusian opposition leader, is in Lithuania. Meduza, the Russian outlet, is in Latvia. I mean, it's not like there was some kind of state policy that like all Russians are bad and even liberal Russians are, are not welcome here in in the Baltic states or frankly anywhere else. I mean, there was. The discussion on a visa ban, but you know, it's not as if kind of it's not as if they weren't they weren't made welcome. And they, and for example, when the mayor of, of Riga was interviewed in Russian, um, he was given some pretty tough questions by Dorst, and there was there was outrage about about the questions. But he he kind of defended them and he said, uh, "It's good that I'm being questioned, and 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 this is good." The the idea that that this is emanating from some sort of not saying you're saying this, Emily, but the idea that this is emanating and this is a result of kind of a narrative that like there are no good Russians and, and they're not welcome anywhere is, is just not true because they were no, not I'm not, I'm not saying they, that. What I, what I am no, no, saying... No, I'm no, not, I'm not saying that you were. Yeah, sorry. but j- just to clarify, what I'm saying is that it, it seems to me that part of what is happening here is that on the part of Dost, right, they understand this war and themselves and their own identity differently than basically anybody else in the in the so-called western world yeah and, and and it makes sense right like they're russians and how do you for example reach out to the millions and millions of russians who might not be actively against the war but at the same time who have no truck in actively supporting it one pretty good way is saying well your husband or your son or your brother has a good chance of being conscripted and of being sent to the front with, you know, rusty AK-47 and no ammunition. And an anchor might say, this is terrible. And like, it's awful that they're, that they're doing this. And that might slip into, we hope we can help people by giving them uh, assistance and equipment. That's quite a good way of reaching out to millions right. and millions of people. But it's natural that that doesn't align with political opinion in basically the most hawkish Western country. All right. We will put Ido's own writing on these issues in the show notes. And for now, we'll move on to the South. Democrat Raphael Warnock beat Republican Herschel Walker handily in Georgia's runoff election and will keep his Senate seat. This is the first time since 1934 that the president's party defended every incumbent Senate seat. And in fact, they actually added one in flipping a seat in Pennsylvania. Okay, so first off, what this means basically is that Democrats, although they will have a harder time in Congress more generally because they lost the House, they will have an easier time for certain on certain matters in the Senate, especially judicial nominations, which they'll now have an easier time getting out of committee. It means they're less dependent on, say, Arizona Senator Christian Sinema because they have 50 votes without her. What else does this mean? There are some who are saying that this shows that Biden has done a wonderful job. I think actually... This, these midterm elections did not end up being a referendum on Biden, and that helped Biden, right? It ended up being a referendum on other things and individuals like democracy, like reproductive rights, like candidates picked by Trump, but it actually wasn't driven by the president. This is very rare for a midterm election, right? Normally, it's just you're, you're mad at inflation, you're mad at gas prices, you're going to vote against the party in power. The other thing that we should say is that and I don't mean to disparage Senator Warnock at all. I think he's a really good candidate for that state, right? He is a reverend. He is a, an extremely gifted orator. He has really stressed that he's able to work with Republicans, that he is not some sort of ideologue, which is appealing in a, in a purple state that is not, you know, a state that with both Democrats and Republican, with many, with, with, with roughly equal Democrat and Republican voters. That said, 
I really feel we should perhaps take a closer look at Herschel Walker when we are considering why Herschel Walker lost this election. This is a former football star who has been accused of domestic abuse, who reportedly paid people to have abortions and then went around campaigning about how he's anti-choice. He also, in recent weeks, talked about the difference between a vampire and a werewolf. He had ads with like this young woman swimmer who was mad about trans athletes, which I'm not really sure is an issue that's top of mind for most Georgians. He brought in Senator Kennedy from Louisiana to campaign with him. Kennedy starts talking about kale and how liberals just eat kale. Like, this was not a good candidate. Every other major Republican in that state won their election. The Republican governor was reelected. But it turns out that although, and I've, I've read a piece on this that we can put in the show notes, where it was possible that, that enough Georgians would just want to see somebody with a Republican jersey who could go vote with Mitch McConnell and make him Senate Majority Leader. But that wasn't the case, because this clearly is not a person who should be in the U.S. Senate. I mean, he's he's not. he Because of his history, because of how he comports himself, because of the issues that he seems to think matter. And so we lost. And so I, I say this because I kind of don't think the Democrats should take this and like, you know, obviously they won, but I sort of don't think they should take this, sit back and be like, well, George is blue now. It's not blue. What it does show is that if you run good candidates and your opponent is a Trump-backed charlatan, you will have an okay shot. I want to endorse everything em- Emily just said and, and add that I, I think some of the Democrat adverts that were running on television in the final one in to the runoff election were just clips of Herschel Walker. The argument was basically, look at this man in his own words judge this person's character and decide, is he the person you want to represent you in the United States Senate? So this was a really weak candidate against an extraordinarily strong candidate in Raphael Warnock. So I think there is a real danger, you're right, Emily, in over-learning that lesson. And and in the, the response we saw from Joe Biden the morning after the midterm elections of it's a few sigh of relief day across America. You know, thank goodness we, we we pulled back from the brink and comprehensively turned away from Trumpism. I don't think that is what this election result means, but I, I'd be really interested in what you think this means for the broader national picture. And if this, I mean, this, it seems that this would provide pretty, pretty conclusive evidence if it were wanted by senior Republicans that Trump is not a vote winner. The candidates that we saw backed by him in the midterms, who he, you know, he was supposed to bring out his his base to, to support, they did not win their seats. There is a there is an opportunity there if they want to have the fifteenth time be the charm and this be the moment to to walk away from Trump. But do you think there's any any prospect that we're that we're going to see that? I mean, I think it's important to remember that it's not like it was just Trump who was backing Walker. Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham were there campaigning for him and speaking out on his behalf. What we have seen is that with these candidates, white college-educated voters will vote for Democrats if this is who the Republicans put up. What Republicans could do now is to try to win those voters back by putting up, I personally don't consider Kemp to be a moderate, but just like somebody who is a politician who can like run a campaign where multiple women aren't coming out and saying, oh, I was abused by this person or, oh, this person tried to like bribe me into making a different reproductive choice. I think the idea is that Trump did so well with rural voters and rural voters were going to come out in droves for walkers. I'm just a simple country Senate candidate shtick. And that didn't work. Do I think they learned this lesson? I think they'll say they will, but they have to get out of the primary first. Like Walker won the primary. 
So what do you do if you're a Republican leadership and you know that you're going to have a problem in the general if this is who you put up, but you have to get out of the primary election first? That's for them to figure out. I will. I do want to, before we move on, highlight one thing that Warnock said during this campaign, which was, so basically January 5th, 2021, he and John Ossoff, who was the other senator from Georgia, young American Jew who had worked for Congressman John Lewis, this is not, I know in Britain, this has a different context. He was a civil rights icon. And he said on, on January 5th, this is who Georgia elected, a black man, Jewish man. We were speaking for something different. On January 6th, the Capitol was stormed by people who were mad about voters of color and especially black voters having a say in the election. He said, it's not true that we are just January 5th, but it is also not true that we as Americans are just January 6th. We're somewhere in between. And I agree with him that right, I think right now America's figuring out which of these two it's going to be. I was just going to ask one one brief follow-up, Emily, which is seeing already talk this morning about Raphael Warnock as a possible future presidential candidate. I mean, he seems an extraordinarily impressive individual. What what do you think about that? He could be one day. I think one good thing for the Democrats is that they had, in, in these midterms, younger gubernatorial candidates who won, who are now viable politicians. There are more candidates who are, how can I put this, not in the final decades of their lives, who could perhaps run for the highest office at some point. But I also think that Biden is probably going to run in 2024 because the midterms went as well as they did for Democrats, that this will be taken by the president and those around him and those close to him as a sign that he can he can do it again. So we will see. Final, final brief follow-up. Does this mean that we can finally stop talking or talk less about Joe Manchin? Yes, for the same reason that that I said at the top of my little spiel here, that Kirsten Cinema is no longer, the, the same is true for Joe Manchin. I think he will probably continue to be more important than she is in that he's to be a Democrat from West Virginia and get elected to the Senate is different than being a Democrat from Arizona. Like there, there is another Democrat from Arizona who's in the Senate right now. And he is the one who made the deal with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer to get Biden's agenda passed over the summer. So you won't stop hearing about Joe Manchin, but you may hear about him a little bit less than you would have had Warnock not won this election. Now, you would definitely be hearing about them less had Democrats picked up the second seat, but they did not. So here we are. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, I'm Armando Yunucci. And I'm Anusha Kellyan. And we present Westminster Reimagined on the New Statesman podcast. Each episode, we'll be taking a look at how our politics has got so broken and whether there's anything we can do to fix it. We hear from people shaping our society, from the front line to the corridors of power alongside campaigners, journalists and satirists, including John Stewart, Ian Hislop, Rosamond Adukissi-Debra and Catherine Haddon. You can listen to all three series now. Just search the New Statesman podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to newstatesman.com forward slash Westminster Reimagined. All right. But with that, we are going to move to a section that we like to call You Ask Us. So our question this week is, if this is really the end of China's zero COVID policy, and I am skeptical, what will it mean for China's economy and the world's? But what would you tell our skeptical our skeptical question writer? Well, I think we all identify uh, very strongly with anyone of a, of a skeptical nature. So first, we deliver our solidarity. Secondly, look, I, I would say I think we are seeing a concerted shift now. I think reasons to take this seriously are that the messaging in the key party organs has changed. So People's Daily, the, the main party mouthpiece newspaper, is now talking about a new stage that China's battle against the pandemic over the past nearly three years has now put it in a, in a much stronger position and that the virus itself has become weaker. We're starting to see a concerted effort to play down the severity of the disease, which is a real about face. The messaging for, for most of the last three years has been, you know, this is a deadly threat. You need to avoid catching it at, at all costs. And that's why China's very strict pandemic controls are, are absolutely necessary and non-negotiable. So we're seeing that start to shift. We're seeing the physical testing infrastructure being removed. So you see these PCR testing booths, which have been a, a feature of, of people's daily life for years now, being physically put onto the back of trucks in, in Beijing and, and driven away. And we are seeing a, a real easing of lockdown and contact tracing policies in a number of key cities. So I think we're seeing a shift. I think it's important not to see the protests that we talked about on last week's episode and this shift in policy and see A as 
causing B. I think we should see this as caused by a, a number of factors. You know, number one is the very severe economic toll, the very bad consistently figures that we have seen quarter by quarter now. So there was a very strong economic imperative for the CCP to move away from this, which was also leading to really extraordinary figures like youth unemployment up to close to to 20%. There was absolutely real public anger, which we have seen build really since the start of this year. In earnest, we have seen that burst forth into protests most significantly the weekend before last in this really extraordinary wave of unrest. So I think public anger and the and the government's understanding of, of where public anger was is certainly a factor. But then there's also just the reality that they were really struggling to contain the virus. Even with everything that they were doing, Omicron is so contagious. Case numbers were really surging. So I think we were seeing the dam start to burst as it was. And this is now an attempt to make this look like a real decision and a plan rather than what I what I think it more likely is, which is trying to put a positive spin on a on a on a pretty dire situation. The issues that I think we're going to see, going back to the question on what this means for China's economy and the world's economy, is that this isn't a matter of shifting the policy, moving on from COVID zero, and now China's economy can rebound and it can retain its position as as the engine of global growth that it previously was. The CCP has not spent the last three years doing some of the things that it needed to do to do this. So it's put a a lot of investment into testing infrastructure, central quarantining facilities. That's great, but that's what's now being disbanded. And what it hasn't done is a really effective campaign to get people vaccinated, particularly overall as the population, the numbers are impressive. But when you look at the older population and particularly people over 80 who are most vulnerable, there's I think around 40% of people have had the three doses of the Chinese-made vaccine that they need to be seriously protected. And China's public health infrastructure is is just not seriously prepared for this. In a lot of parts of the country, there's really quite rudimentary public health care services. So I think we are seeing the top-down order now to shift away from this, and we're now going to see over the coming weeks and months what that looks like in terms of implementation. I I think if if case numbers are overtaking hospital capacity, if we're starting to see real issues, then I think we can expect to see spot lockdowns again. We can expect to see local officials um, trying to to figure this out and trying to contain case numbers in this area. So I don't think it's going to be a clean transition, but I think it, it is the beginning of the end of that policy. And I think there's reason to think that, you know, in six months time, I think we're going to be in a, in a very different position in China. But getting there could, could still be quite difficult. I often think of something that Ido once said in a U.S. Gus, which is when you don't know something, you just should know pine on it. And so I will leave it to Katie, unless, Ido, you have anything to add on China's uh, health and economic policy. Oh, I could I could go on for for a long time. Right, right. Um, well, we're I've, out of time. I've, I've given um, up on that policy. Have you turned on it? Like the Chinese Communist Party has you turned on zero COVID? <laughs> okay, so we will leave it there. Um, we will put links to all of our writing on the subjects discussed today, and of course, the show notes. But for now, thanks to all of you who sent in your questions, listeners, you can send yours in at newstatesman.com/slash/youaskus. That's newstatesman.com/slash/youaskus or by tweeting us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with Waksha Kumar on the state of media freedom or the lack thereof in India.
If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please do subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars and leave a good review. It really does help. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening. And until next time. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.